City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City City Limits. So, City Limits, time's 9am, time to start. Um, We're just going to start with a song. Um, This is a song Tim Minchin wrote last week for Cardinal George Pell. That's the third highest ranking Catholic in the world, I didn't know that. So I guess the third most evil person in the world? No, that's defamation. Sorry about that. Um, Pell has said that he is too sick to fly from Rome to face the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse that's being held in Ballarat. So Tim Minchin put this song together to raise money for the victims to fly over to Rome and tell their stories to him there. So far, $203,000 has been raised of the 55000 that they were aiming for, so I guess they're flying first class, which is pretty good. And given that this is Tim Minchin, I'm going to give you a language warning. And you're listening to City Limits, and that was Come Home Cardinal Pell by Tim Minchin. The old Pell Pot. <laughs> Pell Pot. Time yes. 9.05. This is 3CR 8.55 a.m. Maybe you're listening on 3cr.org.au. Are they, Emma? They could be. Yes. And Possibly. We've, we've got Emma here. Good morning. We've got uh, Kevin. I'm here. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Everyone's here. We're all here in the studio. What are we going to talk about? Lots of things today. Well, our main guest today, it's the fourth Wednesday. We haven't got a specific subject on fourth Wednesdays, but as we as we alerted people last week, so there'll be millions tuned in now, mm. um, we've got Dave Sweetie on today coming on in about 10 or 15 minutes uh, to talk about the the Royal Commission into Uranium Mining that went on in South Australia and came down with an interim report last week, and there's lots of other things. But Dave, for those who don't know, I think most would know, is the anti-nuclear campaigner at the Australian Conservation Foundation and uh, and very articulate on these things. We'll just ask him a question and at about 10 o'clock we'll um, tell him time's up. That'll yeah, be it. that's pretty much good. it. Yeah, Sounds he's, good. He's good. He knows it all. Knows it all. <laughs> That'll be it. We're not uh, needed at all. <laughs> no. But on that, I, I'm bringing up to the front because of the, what we just played about um, good old Georgie Pell. Um, this item last week, it's been floating around for a week or two, where the the Australian Christian lobby wants the law um, set aside so they can preach hate, race hate, in the coming plebiscite about um, same-sex marriage. They say that the current law will ban them from saying what they really like to say. So mm. It's good when Christians feel they need to change the law so they can say they hate people, isn't it? Mm. Mm. Jesus, yeah. Jesus would have wanted it that way. Yeah. Oh, very much so, yeah. Well, mm. well it's, they quote Jesus, don't they, in saying that's why same-sex marriage is so bad. <laughs> Apparently, well, you know. can't actually quote Jesus on that because he never said anything on no, it. No, they'll no. find something, though. <laughs> <laughs> always find something. Oh, tea, we've got to pull he, the tea. He, he did say something about um, particularly respecting sorry, sorry children. Sorry to interrupt you here. I remember but, that bit. But do you want a cup of tea? I'd uh, love one. Okay, Thank we you. won't ask Corey. She never drinks our tea. Oh, what a shame. Yeah. Keep going, Corey. You can talk again now. Yeah, but the uh, anyway, that's uh, that's it. They want to do they want to do that, and the Australian Christian lobby, of course, they're so Christian. The bloke I don't know if he still runs it, but the bloke who ran it was this that was the ex head of the SAS. That's that train killer lot who kill with a little finger. You know, they run around. 
He was head of SAS, and you might, perhaps you too, I don't know if you recall, but when we invaded Iraq, uh-huh. uh, every night Kerry O'Brien on 7.30 report had these three warmongers discussing it as war. It was is wonderful. Is this in 91 or 2003? This is 03. Okay. This is yeah. the second one. And they'd... Um, They'd sit there and they'd analyse it in war terms, in military terms. And mm. this bloke, the SAS bloke who's head of the Australian Christian Lobby, was rubbing his hands with glee whenever it was reported we were actually killing people, the number of people we'd knocked off. And mm. So, we, I mean, they, it's good. So they rub their hands when we kill people overseas. He goes overseas himself and is a trained killer. And he says we have to be able to preach hatred against uh, people of same-sex marriage. So he's a, well, at he's least a classic he's, Christian. At least he's logically consistent. Yeah, I suppose that's true. Yeah. <laughs> as long as as long as you take out the Christian bit. Mm. No, no, I think um, I think it probably fits perfectly. Mm. Mm. <laughs> you think about it, but then the it's the other lot we're fighting. We're fighting the uh, oh, yeah. <coughs> the heathens the who heathens. Are, call themselves oh, Islam, yes. and they're they're the ones who are cruel and heartless, mm. not us. The fact that, of course, who would in the Crusades who invaded who? By the way, can <laughs> And That's who going taught... right, right, right back? That's where it, but it's part of the history, and it it's, it's important to it. Yeah. And in the Crusades, who taught who to bathe and use spices in their cooking? Ah, now let me think. <laughs> in fact, I read a book about a history of Italian cooking, mm. uh, which argues that in fact pasta originally started in North Africa and came across from there, mm. a form of it going way back. Yeah. I've heard China. China, that's yeah, what I thought that's too, because noodles. That's yeah. more noodles, yeah. But yeah. This, uh, this book argued Similar. that the pasta in Italy came through North Africa and uh, came from those countries. Wow. Yeah. That's interesting, isn't it? Mm. Speaking also of such things like killing people, um, I was taken last week, last Saturday apparently there was some sort of um, celebration of Vietnam veterans and, mm. and the, the story in our local rag about these old veterans and how they're going to the cemetery to honour the soldiers there who died, etc. And our local member in my local paper, uh, Kelvin Thompson, the retiring member for Wills, invited people to join him to come along and Remember these wonderful people and the Vietnam veterans' motto, honour the dead and fight like hell for the living, etc. And I think, well, you know, it's amazing how in, in, in uh, history now we suddenly turn these people into, into heroes mm. who actually went to an illegal war, invaded another country. Mm. Uh, many of them were conscripts and, you know, and, and innocent young conscripts who had no idea. But I and think, no choice. I think the real heroes were the ones who, at 18 or 20 years of age, said, I'm not going to go and fight for my country in an illegal war, mm. and either mm. went underground or became draft resistors and fought the bloody thing. Mm. Uh, but now we're turning those people who went into absolute heroes. Um, when I know I'm being bitter about it all these years later because <laughs> I was part of the anti-war movement, but it still seems to me that we've, we've turned history on its head now and we're trying to, to make mm. them heroes when, in fact... While they shouldn't be um, absolutely discriminated against, I think we shouldn't honour what they did because mm. it wasn't very honourable. Mm. Just like Anzac, That's the right. Anzacs, exactly. really. Exactly. Sorry. Yes. Mm. Yeah. In fact, coming up shortly, and there's a and um, there's going to be a celebration, and you won't get too much of this in the Murdoch media because you get you know almost by the day now with the in, in the hundred years of the war right through mm. to eighteen now, there's something to commemorate to honour war and go and lay a flower and say how wonderful it was mm. to go and kill people and be killed. But there shortly of course this year we actually celebrate the hundredth anniversary of the anti conscription. 
mm. uh, victory in which uh, Australian people actually rejected conscription to go to that war, which mm. they all said, tell us was a great war and we, we did wonderful things. Mm. And twice did we refuse, actually, when not like Caesar thrice, but twice did we refuse. <laughs> and... Um, and so that's coming up, but I don't see. I'm not sure. See, I have a lot of stuff about about a hundred years celebrating people saying mm. we don't want to go to war. When will that be? Um, well, I can't remember. It's sometime this year. It's coming up relatively shortly. There's. I should check the date. I can't remember what date the first one. There were two of them. The first mm. one was in um, 1916, and I can't remember the date. To be honest mm. with you, I should know it, but I don't. So that was a terrible question to ask me. <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but it is, it is this year. It's coming up. I know it's coming yeah. up. So we'll... Provide we'll, some more details. Yes, that's right. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll sort that one out. Yeah. Um, back, to, uh, back to 2016 again. Um, AGL, you might have noticed, has decided now it's not going to send letters out to customers about price changes. You'll only know when you get the bill. Okay, That's great. Okay, Unless you're online. They, but, mm. And this really is ostracising against particularly older people who have these things. Um, it says people have a preference for electronic communication, so there's no need to send letters. But, of course, there's a lot of older people in particular, and they're the ones who may well be most of, affected by the whole bloody thing. Mm. Something we might raise with April and the housing people next time because they deal with those sort of mm. matters. So there you are. Um, and the next one here, just going down these. Oh, look, this is an amazing. I mean, we talk about the um, the Catholic Church and its attitude to molesting children. Um, did you see this item? Now, people wanted to, this was actually in the age this week. People probably saw it, but I, I thought it worth mentioning because it's so bloody terrible. Um, the, when, when Indonesia invaded Timor, mm. and we know the Australian government at the time and subsequently played a dreadful role, mm. and the subsequent the subsequent dreadful role of Gareth Evans as um, later on as um, foreign minister who who recognised the Indonesian occupation de facto, he kept calling it de jure occupation, mm. um, a, a most disgraceful piece of Australian history. But it turns out that in reports about the fact that. Uh, East Timorese people were, were being raped and assaulted and murdered. Um, Australian diplomats on the files wrote funny little, you know, what they considered to be comedy little comments. Like there was one which says the what Fredlands, a report from Fredland, the enemy are daily torturing, raping and executing the captured population at a detention camp near Bacow. It, this phrase is underlined by a diplomat with the comment, sounds like fun. Isn't that wonderful? Mm. And these have been unearthed by a couple of researchers who say there's vivid evidence of the lack of empathy and concern for human mm. rights abuses in East Timor in the Department of Foreign Affairs. And, of course, the bloke we all said you know, at the time was totally in support of Indonesia, our ambassador there, Richard Walcott, who still often gets gets called upon to, to talk about foreign affairs issues, mm. he cabled Canberra to observe the gap in the sea border, and this is all about the oil in the middle, of course, that so was mm. very much part of it, which they did at Gareth Evans, was photographed with champagne, toasting with Ali Alitas, the <laughs> Indonesian foreign minister, the fact that they'd split up the East Timor's oil without East Timor getting a cent. Mm. Uh, anyway, Wilcox said... The, the gap in the, the, the sorting out the border problem could be much more really readily negotiated with Indonesia. So certainly oil was very much a part of their diplomatic uh, 
justification for uh, supporting Indonesia's invasion and all the terrible things mm. that happened. And then in the end, oil was, you know, part of their justification for, you know, liberating East Timor as well. I mean, you know, they re they redrew up the national boundary <laughs> so we could have all that oil. Well, that's still going on. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's ongoing, isn't it? Mm. So there we are. That's that one. Anyone else got anything you want to do? Rape on the map? Not really. Shall, shall we go to Sweeney? We could well go to Sweeney. We'll just do one. Seven, oh, no, seven. We'll go to Sweeney. Yeah, look, I've got more here, but everyone knows this stuff anyway. Um, yeah, we'll take a break and go to Sweeney. All right. Welcome. 3CR Breakfast Radio meets the people. So come along to 3CR Sustainable Breakfast Series. Broadcast live from Friends of the Earth Food Co-op. Join us for breakfast tasties at Friends of the Earth 312 Smith Street, Collingwood, or tune in to 3CR to hear what people are doing in the area of sustainability. From Tuesday, March the 15th to Friday, March the 18th. Starts at 7am, goes through to 8.30am. Come down, watch a live show. Every show will have a musician and it's a fantastic initiative by 3CR and Friends of the Earth. Supported by Yarra Council. You're listening to City Limits on 3CR and that was the wonderful Billie Holiday with God Bless a Child who has his own. Yes, delightful, isn't it? It's beautiful. Yeah, we'll, love that that song. we'll just get rid of Dave. We don't want to talk to him about um, On the line is Dave Sweeney. As we said at opening the program, Dave's the anti-nuclear campaigner with Australian Conservation Foundation. Why don't we get more pro-nuclear campaigners on yeah, the show? Yeah, we should. Well, we've got, we're going to quote a few of them here. We're okay. We're under control. Okay. D- Dave, last week uh, the Royal Commission in South Australia came down. We talked to you when it came out. We could probably just replay the same interview, I think. Um, but um, just give us a quick rundown of what they recommended. Yeah, sure. Good morning, Kevin. Good morning, Corey. The, 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 We've got um, Emma with us as well this morning. Well, there's a team here. There's three of us. Oh, there's a crew. Good morning. Right. Yeah. Hi. Good morning. Look, basically, uh, last last Monday, the, the Royal Commission um, gave what it's called its interim or tentative findings. Um, the commission was set up um, a year ago. It uh, had very, very strongly, very uh, strongly orientated towards um, a pro-nuclear set of findings in the best Sir Humphrey sort of way. It looked at opportunities to expand the nuclear industry in South Australia across four sectors, uranium mining, uranium processing like enrichment, uh, domestic nuclear power and waste management. At the time, Kevin, when we spoke, we, uh, the environment groups, had a look at the terms of reference and the composition of the committee, and we criticised that really strongly. And we said, look, three of these four are not going to fly. More uranium mining, uranium enrichment, and nuclear power. Um, there's not a market for it, the demand for it, etc. They're, they're going to be killed by the economics. We said the only real thing here is that this commission is either set up to be or will inevitably drift and become. Uh, a Trojan horse for the question of radioactive waste management, which is code for international high-level radioactive waste dumping in regional South Australia, and that's pretty much probably on happened. Aboriginal land. Oh, it's all uh, Aboriginal land. Well, we'll be on Aboriginal land. Yeah, well, always was, always will be. Um, but yeah, probably very, very directly. You're in, indeed right. Um, so they've come out. The commission's come out and said, yeah, look. Uh, Nuclear power, not commercially viable, nor is uranium enrichment. Uranium mining, uh, we're into it as much as the market permits. It's a commercial decision. Um, it's not much of a, it's not much of a sector anyway. Uh, it said where there's big money, where there's big opportunity, where South Australia needs to discuss going, 
is uh, hosting high-level radioactive waste. It was literally glowing about the economic prospects mm. for that. And mm. South Australia, is, you know, is, you might know very clearly, and as a lot of listeners know, it's in tough economic times. Um, it's facing real hits to vehicle building, to manufacturing, to uh, a whole range of work. Couple that with the decline in extractors and mining industry, and South Australia's in in tough times. You know, highest national unemployment rate, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But Dave, is there an industry in South Australia that's doing really well? Um, well, there is. There's, there's, there's renewable sectors. energy. Renewable energy in South Australia is yes. leading the nation. Tourism hmm. and um, a whole range of sort of niche regional products from wine through to, you know, um, all sorts of stuff is going well. Like South Australia has got strong sectors and strong opportunities, but they're not consistent with uh, turning it into an international radioactive waste dump. So what's proposed is there, there's been this... Um, uh, c- consultants have been engaged to do economic modelling. Now, we haven't had the time or the capacity yet to do a fine-tooth comb assessment of that. But that's driving and saying this will cost $150 billion to um, to build and operate and, and it will generate $220 billion, give or take, over 150 years. Um, and so they're saying South Australia and the Adelaide Advertiser, again, you'll know, it's a Murdoch paper in Adelaide for one horse media town. The Adelaide Advertiser's um, level of restraint about reporting of this is when it talks about the stupendous sums of money involved, there's imagined Scrooge McDuck swimming through gold coins. That'll be us. <laughs> so, so we've got a long yeah. way to go before we've got a measured uh, debate uh, and discussion uh, happening here. With um, the 150 years, how much longer does uranium last than 150 years? Well, radioactive waste, there's all sorts of different, different sorts, but often, many of it, hundreds of thousands of years. Facility would be a threat. Material in any high-level radioactive waste facility would remain an active threat to people and wider environment for 300,000 years. So this is a forever decision. That's why we're engaged. It's not just some uh, state-based assessment and we run a flag up. It is... It's happening with um, a combination of circumstances which are, you know, distressing, uh, 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 difficult economic times, um, weird political times. Uh, there's, there is not one country, after 70 years of a nuclear industry, not one country on Earth has a final disposal site for high-level radioactive waste. So that gives you an indication of how complex and costly it is, how controversial and contested it is. And for Australia to come in and, and, and say, we've now got the silver bullet and it's called regional South Australia, mm-hmm. is, um, is, you know, it's dangerous. We're taking it very seriously because it's a very serious thing. We're not, we're not in full panic mode, but we're in, come on, let's, let's have a cool head about a discussion about a very hot and very long-lived waste. And let's not just make um, decisions and, and frame a debate, you know, with a view to tomorrow's headline in the Adelaide Advertiser. Mm. Dave, the, on those economics of it, um, this, the report talks about uh, being worth $120 million over and above expenses over 150 years. And then there's a separate part that says the, the total uh, amount you'll make over that 150 years will be $51 billion. Now, that's in, in terms of even per year, forgetting the fact that stuff's going to last hundreds of thousands of years longer... That's bugger all, isn't it? It, it? it slices down pretty rapidly, doesn't it? For, yeah. for stuff that's a forever problem um, and that nobody, including very engineeringly sophisticated, technically sophisticated and, and, and economies and countries with deep pockets and a long nuclear experience like Germany, the States and the UK haven't been able to sort high-level radioactive waste. Mm. 
It doesn't. It, it, there's a, for a whole range of reasons, Kevin, you're absolutely right. It, it doesn't stack up. And our concern is that, you know, if a thing's rolled out like jobs and dollars and it's glossed up like that and there's this subtext like, oh, well, this is sort of rubbish country anyway, so it doesn't matter if we can turn a dollar out of it, that, that's um, a good thing. That's, that's a little dog whistle subtext in this whole debate as well. Um, we're concerned that the shiny dollar sign... Um, is uh, is seen much more sparkling than mm. the very real danger sign. Yeah. Is it above ground or below ground storage? Well, the, the, yeah, what they're proposing is basically a twofold thing where you would um, store initially, so that would be above, mm. uh, whilst you construct a purpose-built deep geological burial. Yes. Yeah. So, so the, another concern in this is that it might... If it gets a, got legs, there could be a situation where you could imagine where utilities from around the world would be absolutely wrapped mm. to get their shipping containers full of um, uh, high-level radioactive waste, get their canisters out the door and to Australia, and it's wrapped and stacked somewhere in the, in the mm. South Australian outback, and that's as far as it gets. Yeah. You know, it's a perpetual store. Um, and so there's so many uncertainties about this. And there's so there's there's in in the commission's report, which is actually really interesting. If you take a step back and you look at this commission, pro nuclear commissioner, pro nuclear terms of reference, overwhelmingly pro nuclear, actively pro nuclear advisory panel, and yet they've come up with seventy five percent no to the nuclear industry in South Australia. Mm-hmm. And yet mm-hmm. the, the the bit that is the growth industry is the stuff that isn't dead, mm. which is the waste. So the industry's yeah. dying. It's contracting around the world. It's being replaced by renewables and it's contracting. Its market share mm. has fallen and it has been replaced by renewables and that trend is increasing and it won't change. So the industry is dying, but the waste the is waste never dead. Yeah. Mm. And so that's now seen as, you know, the growth area, the area for mm. possibility. Um, and there, there are real concerns too that the report... Um, was pretty light on in looking at the international experience. It pointed to Scandinavia, where Finland is well advanced in um, developing a purpose-built deep geological repository. So five, you drill down 500 metres and you put the stuff down and you never bring it back. That's the plan. Mm. So Finland's well advanced on that. Sweden's taken steps along that, but it's a hell of a long way to go. And no one else is doing it. No one mm. anywhere in the world has a site for the final disposal of high-level radioactive waste. Mm. Mm. And so the, that ha- and, and there has been billions spent, as, as you and many listeners know, in the States, in the UK, in Germany, and it hasn't worked. And yet that's completely glossed over in the report. Mm. Not completely, but it, it is, in, in essence, it is. It says sort of, you know, there is strong international trend towards deep geological emplacement and blah, blah, blah. It all sounds reasonable, but when you tease it out a bit, when you look at the real-world examples, mm. it's actually not working. So chuck that into a mix, you know, three hours north of Port Augusta, mm. and it's, um, mm. it's, a, it's a recipe for big problems, not just for South Australia, but for Australia. It has national security, national environmental, national implications. And so, you know, we're saying this isn't, this isn't just something that a former South Australian governor... Um, you know, operating in a state context, 
uh, needs to discuss. This is something that involves this and every future of Australian mm. generation of Australians, and we need you know yeah. to have what we're having now a fair income discussion about. I, is I, want to way to go. I want to come back to Kevin Scarce himself, who was the Royal Commissioner, but um, there is a team at Sheffield University, I'm sure you're aware of who are currently working on some form of cement they they claim, if they can perfect it, will protect the environment from radiation for 100,000 years is the term they give it. Um, so there's teams trying to do this, but it's mm. it's pretty optimistic, isn't it, to think you can get a bit of cement that's mm. going to do that for 100,000 years anyway and, and, and predict that far ahead. Yeah, look, the, the levels of uncertainty are, are massive. Mm. And, yeah, look, there's the Sheffield team. There's, there's, there's uh, the French... Um, uh, you know, solution or model is is uh, is a borosilic uh, glass, a, a glass-based matrix to to isolate radioactive waste. Mm-hmm. And so, the Australian Nuclear Science and Technology Organisation up at their Lucas Heights facility in Sydney uh, are continuing to go hammer and tongs on what they call mm-hmm. Synroc. Yes, I was going to say there was years ago they came up with Synroc here. But that's that seems to have been lost in the. Uh that seems to be lost in the mists of time somewhere. Well, it's it's actually being revisited, and and ANSTO are actively now developing a Synroc plant for um, to take it further. They they think it's optimistic. Um, you know, they're optimistic about it, and they think that that will be um, the the uh, technology that is the the technology for the future. Now, I think they're wildly optimistic. And I think what we see is, as you mentioned before about confidence and uncertainty, how do you predict? How do Mm. you predict what's going to happen, you know? Mm. And how do you predict for those sort of timescales? And if we look just at the one one example at at international lived experience, in the 1970s in Germany, in an old mine in northern Germany, uh, the decision was made on the basis of, of really extensive modelling and technical data, and it was the best available um, data to inform a decision that the way to manage radioactive waste was to bury it. Mm. So they buried it. I did all that, you know, in with Germanic thoroughness. Mm. And right now, there is a massive program in Germany with their National Radioactive Waste Agency about how do we dig up those 120,000 barrels. Mm. Do we dig them up? If we do, how do we dig them up? Mm. Where could we put them if we do dig them up? And it's all come about because the the monitoring is showing massive and unpredicted cracking Mm. and movement. Mm. Now, that's 1975. It's not that far ago. And we're talking people making assurances for periods of 100,000 years plus. So what do you think would be a good solution? Well, the first solution from an environmental perspective for any ecological problem or toxin is reduction at source. So yeah. the first solution, you go into the you go into the house and the and the place is flooded and the tap's on and overflowing, the first thing you do is t- you know, turn off the tap. Then you set about cleaning up and drying up. So we turn off the tap. We need to move away as quickly and as effectively and as comprehensively as possible from the creation of radioactive waste. Yeah. Um, that's number one. Number two is there's a, there's a big discussion um, in, in international circles and in, in the, the crew that routinely discuss and write about this. And there's two broad schools of thought. And this is a bit telegrammatic and I'm not, probably not doing it all justice, but broadly, there's a school of thought that says you, the, everyone agrees it's dangerous, everyone agrees it's long-lived, everyone agrees that you need to isolate it from people in the environment. So then how do you do that? One school of thought says the best way is you find reasonably uh, the most reliable, non-moving, non-water permeable rock strata you can. You drill deep into it and you put 
the stuff there inside purpose-built containers. And there's arguments then about should it be copper, should it be this, should it be that. But you containerize it and you bury it deep in solid rock Mm-hmm. And then you leave it there with no intention ever to retrieve it. Then there's a whole further set of arguments about do you put signs up and if so, how do you have signs that last that length of time, et cetera, et cetera. The second school of thought is that you can't throw the stuff away. The stuff lives forever. It remains a perpetual human and environmental threat. And so rather than bury and, and leave, what we need to do is move into a concept of stewardship. We've got this crap on our planet now. Our job is to look after it for our watch. So we containerize it, we keep it above ground, retrievable, dry, stored, monitored, actively monitored. And then, you know, in our last will and testament of our generation, we leave to our kids care of this crap. They do their best. They, they, they maybe have new container systems. They have Sinrock Mark II. They have the Sheffield University's cement paste. They look after it for their patch. And in their will, they leave it. So it's an idea of perpetual stewardship to most responsibly manage a perpetual mistake and threat. So they're the two broad schools of thought. Um, Most most environmental um, uh, organisations in Australia and internationally are in the stewardship school of thought rather Mm -hmm. than the the burial one. But, um, you know... It's, it's a, like the waste, like the waste, Corey. It's a very live discussion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and just getting back to Kevin Scarce, all we were here of is that he was ex-governor of South Australia, but uh, what, what did he do before that? That's the important stuff, I would have thought. Yeah, well, before that, he was he was Navy. He was, he's been career military, um, Kevin. He's, uh, he, he was born up at Woomera when, when the uh, uh, range was above with missiles and testing. He entered the Navy early, 16, 17, something like that, and exited at 65 as Rear Admiral. Mm. Career, career military, um, you know, distinguished military career, including time as a defence attaché in Washington. You get the pip on your shoulder and the chip in the um, head. Mm. Um, and the, um, the, uh, he then went, and after, um, after a distinguished military career, he uh, was uh, two terms Governor of South Australia, and after that, he was um, one term uh, Chancellor of Adelaide University. Mm. Uh, interesting. So, so you know, like a, a very distinguished career in public life. Very. Um, if, you, uh, if you call being a trained killer all your life distinguished, that's the point. Well, there's, uh, you know, there's. Yeah, where do, where do you start? Distinguished, distinguished in establishment terms, Dave. Yes, let, well, let's say it would um, it would read well in who's who. Yeah. Yeah. Put it that way, you know what I mean? Where yeah. we don't even appear yeah. <laughs> and never we, will. We, we appear in, you know, who the hell are they? <laughs> exactly. So, so, but, but, you know, I'm trying, I'm trying to be reasonably sort of fair. You yeah, know, I like it. It's good. Fully, 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 fully establishment. Um, Korea, but you know, um, <laughs> widely regarded as a decent chap. Yeah, pro nuclear, pro nuclear, and um, you know, has expressed before he took this role, has expressed, I, I don't see why we wouldn't go nuclear. It seems to me to be clean, sort of those style of comments at the dinner party. Mm. Um, and the an, an interesting thing though is that at Adelaide Uni, there's an adjunct unit, I think it is, and, but it's the University College London. 
and has a has a unit at Adelaide Uni that is particularly focused around its its area of focus and they claim expertise is nuclear technology policy and issues and that's been there for quite a number of years now and it is um, a very strong agitator for all things atomic um, and so for Kevin Scarce to have been the Chancellor of that university also raised concerns. Um, we weren't saying that he was, you know, that was fundamentally compromised, but we're saying there's got to be concerns. When you come from that base, from that background, when your most recent position has been Chancellor of a university where there's a very, very vocal mm. advocacy unit and when you have previously expressed comments uh, favourable to the sector, when you have terms of reference that are actively about opportunities to expand. Mm. And when you have a five-member advisory panel, three of whom, three of whom are active, and by active I mean like um, massively active in, in social media promoting all things nuclear. One, a director of a British nuclear, private energy nuclear company. Like, not we're not talking here academic reserve and let's test 16 sorts of papers. We're saying... We're talking here about a, a very um, assertive pro-nuclear set of opinions. Mm. So you put all that into a context which is uh, a, a quite a difficult context for a lot of people to make sense of. Like the, the submission process for putting public comments into this process was extraordinarily arcane and complicated. You had to have submissions witnessed by a JP Hmm. So, like, to put in a public comment to what was termed a public process using public money to discuss something of massive public interest, you had needed to have those submissions, hmm. you know, if you were an Aboriginal person on regional South Australia, you need to go down to the station and get the sergeant That's to sign ridiculous. off on your comment saying you don't like nuclear, hmm. you know? I'd, I'd, say that's a, I'd say that's a barrier to participation. Yeah, I, I think you mentioned, I was going to ask you, was there anyone at all involved with it who came, who started out from an anti-nuclear position? One person, um, and that was uh, one one person on the advisory panel, uh, and that's Professor Ian Lowe. Um, oh, yes. You would know, and some listeners would know, yeah. uh, Ian uh, was a former long-time and distinguished, in the full sense of the word, um, uh, president of ACS. Yep. And interestingly, Ian started off, he, his first job was with um, the, uh, then, the, the then incarnation of British nuclear fuels. As, as a young scientist, Ian actually was um, optimistic and enthusiastic about nuclear. And his mm -hmm. first job was promoting it and in the industry. And he's now an emeritus professor. He's um, at the other end of life's journey um, not bright, shiny in the white coat. He's still bright and shiny, mm. um, but in a relaxed vest. Um, and he is now strongly of the view that, well, he, the way he pithily puts it is, is if nuclear is the answer, it must have been a bloody silly question. Mm. That's mm. one of his anecdotes. But he, he's now of the view that through cost, through waste, through complexity, through the absolute suite of other options that can do the one useful thing, which is electricity, um, we shouldn't go nuclear, we should be decoupling. So mm -hmm. Ian was one of five. There was one other who was the South Australian um, State um, Chief Science Advisor, who um, his position was sort of strictly neutral. There was one who was um, thoughtful and opposed, one strictly neutral, and three strongly um, supportive. Mm -hmm. And then there's the Royal Commission and 
commissioner and um, obviously all the ancillary and support staff that go with such an exercise. Mm. I think another thing um, to look at is given that, um, you know, this bloke has grown up with a defence force, his answer to a lot of questions would be to kill people. Well, I think, yeah, I think... I think his, his his response to that would be to say that you know the defence force plays a, a legitimate, vital, and essential role in any modern nation, and we're professional and et cetera, et cetera, and would take great umbrage and offence to that comment. <laughs> um, and that's you know what he would say, and other people would say. I, I, I don't think he was like, yeah, this is like, you know, I don't think he was that cavalier. If you look at if you look at some of the stuff, like it's, it's looked at nuclear power, and I know for a fact that the nuclear advocates, pro-nuclear advocates, were absolutely in the year all the time. Senator Sean Edwards, Liberal Senator from South Australia, absolutely absurd statements from his office routinely. No one in South Australia will pay a power bill ever again. Your Mm. family will never pay for electricity ever again if we build Mm. new generation reactors. Like... 1950s style, you know, the mighty power of the atom is unleashed style enthusiasm, newsreel voiceover enthusiasm. And to the commissioner and the commission's credit, they've gone, no, doesn't stack up, not Mm. viable, not foreseeable, not not proven. And they've done the same in relation to claims, exaggerated claims about the benefits of uranium mining as an economic activity, exaggerated claims about, you know, future... um, uh, reprocessing or or enrichment of uranium. So, like, to their credit, um, they have, um, you know, it hasn't just been a completely mad fest. 75% Mm. no to the, you know, three of the four areas for growth have been struck out. The real concern, though, is that it's coming from this utilitarian, functional worldview that sees what many of us see as problems and risks and matters of real concern as business opportunities, mm. you know, and it's, it's coming from that sort of, mm. again, that functional worldview of, you know, um, everything is sublimated to, uh, you know, uh, the economic imperative of, of jobs and dollars. Yeah. And we all, we all know the jobs and dollars argument. We, we all want jobs and dollars. We want to see that shared equitably in the community. We understand and we know, and three CR listeners more than most have a sensitivity to what are the human and the social and the community impacts of not having enough jobs and not having enough dollars. Um, so it, I, I get a little bit tired of of that sort of um, selective moral high groundism in the argument when it's framed like that. But there are thousands of ways to generate jobs and dollars, mm. and probably, you know, the worst would be to take the world's worst industrial waste and put it in a in a place. Mm. And at the bottom line, that is scarce as only real justification for doing it. That it yeah, brings well, in the, money. The, yeah. the, the, the top the top line argument is is money. Absolutely. Mm. No question. And the Adelaide advertiser has, you know, like I'm not making it up, they said yeah, you know, imagine Scrooge McDuck swimming through piles of gold coins. Um, wow. So the Adelaide advertiser is pushing that out there left, right and centre. There is another dimension, though, Kevin, and I'm, I'm trying to be fair to some of the argument and reflect some of the mm. thinking in it. And there is another dimension, which is that, you know, there there is a, they've identified what everybody who's in the game knows, which is that this is unfinished business and serious business, and mm. there is a real problem here. 
we identify it and then have a discussion about what can we do, what are the range of options, how can we best phase this, how can we control that, they've identified it and said it's a business opportunity. Mm. Let's go for it. Mm. Let's push ahead. We've got a market niche because we're here and we're remote and we're willing. Uh, Are we willing? It poses that question. And I'd say, no, we're not. Because if you look at this, is the best that we can do in the 21st century in this country is the best that we can do to accept the worst that the world can make. Mm. I reckon mm. we can do better than that. I reckon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we can. In fact, of course, the usual warriors have come out. Ziggy Switkowski is one of the great proponents of nuclear energy. He came out and said this shows that um, it could be operational in a decade with meaningful long-term contributions to the economy and employment while helping address a global need, etc. He, he pushes on, though, to say that it doesn't close off the options for reprocessing and, uh, and even a low, the, the, the new smaller-type nuclear plants. And um, our old mate, um, our old mate um, Ronnie Walker who, of course, with another great business person, Hugh Morgan, wants to build a, a nuclear plant at Portland and still got hopes, I think. He came out and said, now it's even more important for Australia to get the economic benefit. I think there's real opportunities for us, etc. But he goes on to say, I also think that people's attitudes have softened in the past year and there is more support for Australia to go down this nuclear path. Mm. Yeah, there, you know, there, there is an enormous amount of that. Times have changed, attitudes have changed, mm. people have softened, people are now more open. We couldn't have had this debate years ago, all that sort of stuff. We're, we're hearing, you know, just a swag of that, and it's working on, you know, their principle is, is simply, you know, say it often enough, it becomes a self-fulfilling um, reality. Um, I, think, uh, I think every time you look at a nuclear issue in Australia... If it's at, at uh, if it's at the level of a of some sort of uh, rarefied debate, academic discussion, policy matter, um, it, it bubbles along. If it turns into a postcode, here's where we're going to put a reactor. Here's where we're going to put a waste dump. It turns into an issue. Um, so, like people are busy, and I, I don't expect everyone in Adelaide to be marching up and down and saying, you, you know. Um, no to this through uh, a 12-month deliberative public consultation process. I reckon if, if they said, okay, this is, this is the plan, this mm. is what we want to do, and this is the creepy international consortia that is going to run it, that we're going to sublet a chunk of northern South Australia to forever, I think then you'd see rapid and mass outrage. I don't, I don't, it doesn't wear for me for a minute this, we're now uh, a pro-nuclear nation where it's a deeply, this nation is deeply hostile to nuclear mm. and, it, and you see that again and again. And you see that also in the lack of social licence to uranium mining, the contest over the siting of a national radioactive waste facility, etc., etc. The um, And the recent other, winds at Muckety? Well, massive, thanks, and massive. You know, and, and so th- th- those are the things that, that count. If, you, if you're serious about looking at it as opposed to writing an opinion piece, they're the mm. things that count. Um, so there will be uh, a lot of this sort of talk and there will be a lot of talk about, you know, we have a responsibility as the Iranian-producing com- country to step up to the issue of waste. There'll be a lot of talk about we are the safest place. Um, and, you know, there's aspects of those talks which... Um, which need to be really teased out, like what are our responsibilities mm. for, you know, as, as a provider, as home to the world's biggest reserve of uranium and as a provider and as a, the, the direct fueler of Fukushima, 
what are our responsibilities in this trade? So let's have that discussion. I'm, I'm not at all adverse to a good, robust, broad-ranging debate, but but you know all of this sort of stuff of like there's there's little reactors just around the corner that eat radioactive waste and it'll all be fine. It's like it's you know it's Star Trek. Mm. Mm. There's a bloke uh, called Majides, I think his name is, M-A-G-I-D-E-S, anyway, however he pronounces it, who's a 12% shareholder in ERA, which runs, of course, the Kakadu mine, uh, which is mm. scheduled for closing by 2021, and Rio Tinto isn't anxious to go on. But he says it should be kept going, it should be extended, in fact, way beyond that. Um, he, he says, I'm not saying nuclear power is the perfect answer, but it certainly can and should be part of the solution. That's their old argument. Uh, yeah. But he then says... Um, it's perhaps the only power industry that fully accounts for its waste product. Hmm. Yeah, hmm. yeah, it, it's absolutely extraordinary. Is he had a brain the, test lately? Well, he's a, he, he's just bought in. It's an interesting one. He bought it when it went down. He, yeah. he bought in rapidly when it yeah. went down. Yeah. So he bought a like it's a it's a pretty speculative share when it when it bunches down. Um, and you know the reality is that mine is over. It's it's not mining anymore. It's it's in the autumn of operations, rapidly approaching winter. It's stockpiling. It, it's processing stockpiled ore. It's got a license to do that until January 2021, which in mining terms is not far away. Mm-hmm. And Rio Tinto, who owns 70% of it, has said, we're not going to go any further. So we're coming to the end of the chapter, long, sorry, complicated chapter of uranium mining in mm-hmm. Kakadu. Mm-hmm. And that's great. Let's do that. And the tech challenge now is not about extending mining. He, he's shooting in the breeze. The, the, the challenge is about how do we clean up that area, the, the, the massive impacts of mining operation of 30 years of mm. uranium mining. And the other challenge is how do we manage the transition of a regional economy? So, they're, you know, they're big enough social and environmental challenges. We don't need to have another fight with uh, a speculative um, purchaser trying to, you know, trump up the price. Um, in relation to the the thing about waste, though, you hear this claim all the time that the the industry is responsible and uh, you know has fully accounted for its waste. Well, maybe in maybe in one sense that's true in the sense of um, like it basically knows how much they've got and roughly where, <laughs> where it is. Vague <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. Same> idea. <laughs> there, there can be no, like you said, I I, I, I can't see how any reasonable person you can be pro-nuclear but i don't see how any reasonable person can say that they've taken full responsibility for the management of their waste they Mm. routinely generate they get three years of electricity from a fuel rod and you get 300 years of waste as a result Mm. so that's your ratio Mm. three years of switching on the power and 300,000 years of worry i don't reckon it's a really good you know, rate of return, but let's have that discussion separately. The the, the other thing, though, is, is the, the, there is a massive intergenerational consequence and impact from this mm. industry. The waste is there. And great, 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 God is willing that we all make it and the planet rolls on. Mm. We'll continue to face this problem. Mm. Like if Imperial Caesar had had his hot water barbs from uh, nuclear-powered, we'd still be minding his waste. Hmm. Mm. All right. Well, I think that's about it for today. Yeah, well, I just want to, I just want to have All one right. more thing before right. we go because Kakadu is closing and it's about going to have to be rehabilitated and there's been stories recently about the problems that are going to occur at MacArthur River, which certainly isn't mm. uranium, but it's it's an environmental disaster in the Northern mm. Territory and the claim is that the amount, the deposit 
for reclamation is nothing like the real cost. So are we likely to see governments, as these mines close, straddled with the real costs of rehabilitation? Yeah, I, I think, Kevin, um, that is a long conversation for another day. Yeah, but I, I agree with you. We'll do that one day. Yeah. Is, is, it's a massive problem. It's increasingly being in, identified by environment organisations, Aboriginal organisations and state and federal government mm. that we have a massive mine rehabilitation resource gap mm. and and funding gap. And um, I think, you know, um, we're very quick to rush and dig the hole and we're very slow. Uh, to fill it in or to fix it and there are major problems and you've absolutely identified MacArthur River Mine is um, is a massive and complicated and, and costly uh, context there and mine rehab is literally a gaping hole mm. in policy and in the Australian environment and it poses real, real environmental and economic risks and challenges. Not, yeah. Mm. And, and just on that, I mean, in terms of rehabilitation, given that they the government overruled the courts and allowed the company to divert the divert the river against the wishes of the local Aboriginal people. Will will rehabilitation mean it goes back into its original course, or, or does it stay where it is? I, I think I'm, I'm actually not sure. I I don't think that they they're going to revert to original, but I'm I'm actually not sure on mm. that. It's a really good question. What um what is the real concern with Macarthur River and with everything else? Though is like uh, that we we see we have privatised profit and, and publicised costs. You know the the, the costs get shifted. Mm. The company says. You know, this is uh, they either say that they don't have the capacity, or they either have a, a minimum compliance that was signed off in a hurry to get you know the the project open. That is so uh, so uh, light and, and lame compared to what's necessary. That in order to not cut massive corners, um, this becomes a, a massive public cost. So um, you know, the the cost shifting arguments, the environmental impacts, the adequacy of the existing regulatory regime. The legacy mines, of which there are thousands, causing daily trouble mm. in Australia. Mm. All of these things are massive, and I think scales are just starting to fall from the eyes of government. And I think it's, it's uh, you know, we need to ask some really big questions about, you know, how do we have do we have some sort of Medicare levy that addresses mine rehabilitation? Mm. Mm. Okay, Dave. Look, thanks for that. And uh, as you're right, it's a long discussion for another day, but we'll get round to it. But thanks for your time this morning, Dave, and explaining oh, look, well, all thank- that. Uh, look, thanks so much for the opportunity and always enjoy the opportunity to talk to you, Mob. Right, yeah. Thanks, Dave. Thank you. Right, we okay. enjoy talking to you too, Dave. Thanks a lot. Okay, team. So that was are. Dave Sweeney from the Australian Conservation Foundation. You're listening to City Limits on 3CR 855am, 3cr.org.au, and the time is 9.57. And I'm going to play a song. Um, this is Black of the Berry by... Right. We'll sign out with this song then and let's just let yeah. Emma, Emma... Emma, look, thank Corey and tell... But tell mm-hmm. Corey and everyone else next week's okay. transport and lots okay. of lots happening. Uh, thank you, Corey, for your wonderful song selection today. Thank you. Thank yeah, you. great, great. And next week we are talking transport. That's it. <laughs> Excellent. Thanks, team. And, and thanks to you guys. So this song is um, "Black of the Berry" by Kendrick Lamer, um, and this is a portion of his performance at the Grammys. And the whole performance was really interesting because it brought attention to the over-policing of African-Americans and the ongoing murders committed by the police. Um, this one needs a language warning. And and also, um, as part of the Black Lives Matter movement, Beyonce also performed a song promoting that message at the Super Bowl. So it's getting out there.
So, yeah, what are we saying? Kendrick La uh, Lamar, the blacker the berry. Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia, on the Kulin Nation. For more information and to find out how you can support 3CR, go to www.3cr.org.au.